ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Josh has not made a terrible mistake that's supposed to be up there on the screen. He's already made the terrible mistake today, but we fixed it and moved on. Josh works very hard. He's a hard-working young man. Um, I was, for the most part, I would say discouraged after last week and the preaching through the first part of Daniel 7. Um, Not because I thought that um, it was wrong to look at Daniel 7 the way that we did, but uh, just struggling with trying to do a good job with such a text. Um, I am not a prophecy buff. You're not going to find any books published with my name on them about these things. Eleven years of preaching and teaching to you here at the church in this capacity. Um, we have not just gone down week after. It's, prophecy has not dominated uh, the, the, the teaching schedule. Um, and uh, there's no big call to action here from my part. I'm not trying to get you to, to go vote one way or do one thing or prepare for one thing or go figure out one person or the next person. Um, my goal in sharing these things with you is to be thorough and faithful to what God's Word says. And it would not, in my estimation at least, be thorough and faithful to neglect what the Bible says in all of its richness about prophetic things just because sometimes I'm uncomfortable with my ability to present them to you. So if you think I suck at this, sometimes I do too. So you're in good company, or at least my company. I will tell you just one more kind of uh, reality check that I was not encouraged as I stepped down from the pulpit last week to be greeted by my son who loves me Uh, but instead showed me his watch and said, that went 59 minutes, Dad. That's that's my... uh, I think he thought I would chuckle at that because he's about as ornery as I am, but instead I just went, like, that was not my, my intention. So I will intend to do better this week. Whether or not I will, we will see. We're going to read the first portion of Daniel 7 to review. Uh, verse 1 of Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. First was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Suddenly, another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also 
had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in these night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I was considering the horns. There was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened." I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." That's about as far as we went last week. Um, on the screen, on some screen, left or right, you don't have to look at it. If you've got a good mental picture, that's fine. Only doing this to help. These are just artist renderings of this kind of thing. On the left side, you will see some descriptions given. Babylon, with the name Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. These were, in succession, the four dominant world empires that gave way to the world as we know it today with all of its various countries and kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 2, you might remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue. A dream of a statue. The statue had a head of gold, a torso of silver, a midsection of bronze, and legs of iron and iron and clay at the feet with ten toes. In Daniel chapter 2, God interprets this for Daniel, who interprets it for Nebuchadnezzar, that each of these sections represent successive kingdoms. So it's not hard for us to look through world history and line up these kingdoms. This is a very simple exercise for us. We need not do any speculation or determination. Now, were there other empires in the world? Sure, but from the time that Daniel is starting, these are the dominant empires that followed uh, in order. And you say, well, wait a minute, wasn't there some empire in South America where the Aztecs were? Sure, 
Those empires were not in charge of God's kingdom, God's people in God's city. This has to do with God's people in God's kingdom and what's going to happen to them. It's not suggesting that this is the only thing happening in the world. This is a prophecy given to Daniel for God's people. And this is exactly what follows. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, what we have just read... This whole thing is now reimagined for Daniel at the end of his life in the form of these beasts. And I said last week there is something in that for us. Man, from his perspective in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, sees these empires as a great and glorious statue. But when Daniel is given a heavenly depiction of them, they are brute beasts. Such is the glory of man, the first being a lion. Incidentally, the animal symbol of Babylon during the empire was a lion. Uh, we talked last week a little bit about why this lines up to Babylon so clearly, but it does. The next is a bear raised up on one side. It is raised up on one side to signify the significance of one portion of the alliance of the Medes and Persians over the other. Uh, history often simply refers to this world empire as the Persian Empire because by the time of their conquering, the Medes were only a segment of the Persian Empire. A royal segment, but a segment. So we have the Medo-Persian Empire that followed. A great world figure from that empire is Cyrus the Great. You may have heard of him. He's well known in world history. After that, Greece... I'm sure you've at least heard the name Alexander the Great, who was famous for conquering all of the known world and then some well into uh, Eastern Asia, uh, all before the age of 30, and he died at a very young age. When he died, um, despite the great speed to which he conquered, he divided the empire up to his four generals. He didn't have a living heir. He didn't have children to speak of, so he left the empire in the hands of his four generals who divided the empire into four Greek segments and ruled individually. Again, world history is clear about all of those things. Finally, we have pictured here, as opposed to the legs of iron, a beast which Daniel does not relate to any living animal that we have heard of before, with iron teeth. This beast is trampling, and of course, this is just some terrific or horrific uh, artist rendition of it, but I like the rendition in the sense of it doesn't try to make it some beast that we would recognize, because Daniel doesn't do that. He describes it as something unrecognizable. He describes it as something terrifying and dreadful. He describes it as the kind of beast that crushes and puts to an end all of the previous empires and reigns and regions beneath it. On its head are ten horns. Um, so this is a depiction to try to help you line up here the difference uh, between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and see that in effect we are looking at the same thing. I'm giving this to you in as much detail as I can and I'm comfortable with because it is in God's word. This is not some backward segment of God's word. This is part of God's word for you to consider. Let's go to the next slide. Joshua, you probably hear me say that a few times. I didn't provide him with much of a script for this. Now, if we look at verses 11 and 12, Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn, that is the little horn that supplants three of the, of the ten horns on this beast's head, there's a little horn that, that basically uproots three of the ten horns and begins to come to prominence. He says, I watched because of the sound of the pompous, of the arrogant words, which the horn was speaking. 
And I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So this beast meets an end that is very different from the other beasts. The end of this beast is total destruction. Total destruction. Verse 12 points out that that is not what happened with the end of the other three beasts. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, that's the lion, the bear, and the leopard, they had their dominions taken away. They were no longer the dominant empire of the world. They had their reign, their rule conquered by the next successive empire. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, what does that mean? Well, when the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire, the Babylonian people still existed. The, the city of Babylon still remained. Uh, the Babylonian culture persisted and carried on for quite some time. When the Greeks conquered the Persians... Much of the Persians' culture and worship and deity continued on for quite some time after the Greeks conquered them. Certainly when the Romans conquered the Greeks, the Greek culture carried on uh, in high esteem for centuries afterwards. In fact, during the Roman Empire, when we read about the life of Jesus, Greek is the common language of the day. The cities that Paul is traveling to are represented as cities of the Greeks. So each of these other people groups, as they're conquered, continue on into the reign of the next prevailing kingdom until the fourth. When the fourth beast comes to an end, it represents a finality not depicted in the end of the other empires. When it ends, it is totally destroyed and there's a picture of judgment. It says in verse 11, it was given to the burning flame. And this is different from verse 12 where all the other beasts carried on for a while. Let's go to the next slide, Joshua. Um, Verse 13 describes the sudden end of the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Unlike the other kingdoms and beasts, this dominion will not end, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So, the sudden end that, uh, that finishes this fourth beast or this fourth world empire will be sudden because it will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. It is a sad thing that many Christians don't seem to realize and perhaps have never been taught that Jesus will reign on the earth. The Old Testament is clear about this. The New Testament is clear about this. Jesus himself is clear about this. He will reign on the earth. We are not, as Christian people, if we are in fact Christian people, looking forward to some wishy-washy, sentimental, silly version of heaven where people float around on clouds in some ethereal, chubby angel form or spirit-like vapor form or whatever. Those, those um, silly pictures of heaven is not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes Jesus sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning, and his people inheriting the kingdom with him forever. So this is talking about a real thing. This is why Christians believe in a bodily resurrection. When I die and I say that I'm going to go to heaven, one day I will receive a new eternal body, a real body. 
I won't be a ghost floating around haunting people. I won't be some spirit drifting away in the ether of the universe somewhere. I will receive a real body because Jesus is going to reign in a real kingdom and I will be there. Now, if that's like, whoa, I have never considered those things for you, then I'll have you know you have not been taught the Bible clearly. And I would not have that continue on for you. This is not controversial stuff, nor is it that complex. The Bible is very clear on these points. There's much of what will happen at the end of the earth that the Bible leaves up to interpretation and difficulty and challenge. None of what I'm sharing fits in that category. These are simplistic Christian beliefs. In fact, Paul read a, a very great passage from Philippians 4 this morning. And that passage talked about how Christians ought to live. Sorry, pause, John. We have this beautiful passage in Philippians about how Christians should live with the hope and how they should behave. But if you notice there, right after Philippians 4, 4, what he read, he said, the Lord Jesus, when he comes. So all of the New Testament letters are looking forward to the return and reign of Christ. If you're living your life not in that anticipation, you are living with a very different view of what will happen than what the Apostle Paul and, of course, Peter and James are all looking towards in the New Testament. Jesus will reign. Okay, the next slide. Now, Daniel asks for an interpretation. In verse 15, that may be super small, hopefully you have your Bibles, but in verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I can relate to that. I mean, he's grieved, I think, because clearly God is showing him something important, and yet he's troubled by it. He doesn't know. Perhaps he's grieved by what he witnessed, this little horn doing these things. He doesn't understand. So it says in verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all this. By the way, that's a good thing to do when you're unsure about something is go ask whoever God has given you in your life to try to help you think through it in a right way. Of course, the New Testament tells us that God has given you pastors and teachers in your local church whose character you can witness. You know, Daniel had someone there in his vision to talk to. And it says, I came near to one of those who stood by and I asked him, the truth of all this. So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. He says, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So three things are summarized here. If This angelic being, I'm assuming it's an angelic being. I don't know that for sure. But he comes near to someone and he asks and, and he's given a summary. Well, look, Daniel, here's what this means. I'll tell you what this means. This isn't hard. I'll it means this. Four kingdoms are going to rise and fall. God's people are going to belong to the everlasting kingdom and their kingdom will never end. You know, it's almost like, well, I don't understand what's so complicated about what you just saw. But of course, Daniel seems to be troubled by some important details. Go to the next slide, Josh, because he presses the matter. It says in verse 19, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. See, that's the part that was new information from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel remembered the whole statue thing from Nebuchadnezzar, and he'd received the interpretation of that, but there's this whole thing about these ten horns and this little horn, and that, that it's all new, and, for, and he, he wants to know, I wish to know the truth about that fourth beast. 
which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. You see what's troubling him. I want to know what's going on there. I was watching, and the same horn, and I added here in, in brackets here, so that this is not in the text. It's that, that man who's speaking arrogant words is who he's talking about. That same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. So this, this horn that he's watching, this, this figure, is making war against God's people. And I imagine the disturbing thing to Daniel is he's winning. He's defeating God's people. He's killing them. And it happens, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. You can see why this would cause Daniel to push for answers. This part was not in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. All right, next slide, Josh. Now here's what he's told. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So there's the first thing to see here. It's very clear. Now, we got a glimpse of this in Daniel too. But the ten horns represent ten kings. You know, And they will come not prior to this kingdom, but they'll come up from the midst. In other words, this empire will eventually give way to ten rulers. Now, you see that almost in the statue from Daniel too, if you remember begins with two solid legs of iron, but at the end, the bottom of the statue, the toes, it gives way to ten, ten toes, ten kingdoms, we're told in, in Daniel chapter 2. And then, after these ten kings are established, and then another shall arise after them. He, this king, shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue Three kings. Now, subdue is not like a voluntary thing. Like, he's going to eliminate, to conquer, to force three of them to submit. Where there were ten kings, and I assume ten sorts of kingdoms, ten little regional rules, three of them will be conquered and submerged under this new, different king. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So we find a clarification. It's not just that this ruler is arrogant and speaks arrogant things. That is not unique to our political culture and to our world. But this ruler will speak his arrogant words directly against God. He will have a religious agenda. It will not merely be a political agenda. It will be a religious ideology. And it will be a religious agenda against the Most High God. It says, He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Now, I don't know what that means. You don't know what that means. 
You can speculate and I can speculate, but we don't know what it means. And anybody, if I stood up here today and said, well, I can tell you exactly what that means, then you shouldn't trust what I'm telling you because no one can tell you exactly what that means. You should have a fair bit of skepticism when someone stands up and starts telling you things that the Bible doesn't plainly say. Now, it seems to indicate that the changing of laws, that he will seek to institute a new idea of morality, a new idea, after all, he's speaking against God. I think it's safe to say that he will not be espousing Western culture, Judeo-Christian historical values. But it's unclear. We should be okay with it being unclear. When it happens, the people on the earth at the time will understand what it means because it's in God's word. And they'll say, oh yeah, I see what that meant now. But it hasn't happened yet. It says, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Okay, so this is the part that Daniel seems to be struggling with. God's people are going to be put to death. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be delivered to this guy's hands for a time, times and half a time. Now, I am presenting to you this morning that he will have power. What that means is he will have power for three and a half years. I hope you're critical of that. I hope you're skeptical of that. You should be because all I'm doing is saying it. But I'm going to try to make it obvious to you this morning that I'm not saying it out of my own speculation. You can decide for yourself. And if you disagree, that's just fine with me. But I'm going to try to make that clear. It says, the court shall be seated. They shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. There's the final judgment, the return of Jesus, and the setup of his kingdom. Now, next slide. It says, the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, here is the proposed math I have behind that. But I'm telling you up front, this doesn't end here. So be patient with me. A time... Singular, one year, times two years, and half a time, 0.5 of a year. One plus two plus 0.5, three and a half years. And you, and you say, well, hold on a second. That could mean anything. And I, I agree, it could mean anything. Um, I would expect from God's people a healthy dose of skepticism about any of this. Okay? But it doesn't stop here. Three and a half year idea doesn't doesn't stop here. Go to the next slide, Josh. In Daniel 9, which we are simply visiting this morning in the form of this verse, we will get there in the week's head, but in Daniel 9, we're told this about the Antichrist. Then he, that is the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant. A covenant is a treaty or an agreement. A covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, these are two words you need to remember, abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So if you can just remember those two words for a second, abomination and desolate. Okay, remember that. What this is saying is the Antichrist is going to make a big treaty with everybody for one week, it says in the text. Now, I will propose to you, and again, I expect a healthy dose of skepticism, that that one week is one week of years. We don't talk like that. But the idea of a week comes from Jewish culture, historically. 
It did not come from Roman culture or Greek culture. It comes from Jewish culture, from the creation week. The whole world has adopted the idea of weeks from Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, a week means a period of seven. It often and frequently means a period of seven days, but not exclusively. When we get to Daniel 9, we will see very obviously in the text, it doesn't require any sort of you know, great you know, jumping around or speculation. We'll see it means very obviously in the text, not weeks of days, not seven days, but it's talking about years. Now, you're going to have to wait till we get there to see that in Daniel 9, but I am proposing that one week in this text means seven years. If the Antichrist breaks his treaty and agreement in the middle of that seven years, then how much time remains? Three and a half years. That is the middle of seven, three and a half years. So, this assumes that what Daniel 9 means is for three and a half years, the Antichrist will pretty much honor his covenant with God's people. And then over the last three and a half years, he will break that covenant. He'll put an end to all sacrifice and offering and bring in something referred to at the end of 927 on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. All right, next slide. What does Jesus have to say about this? That should matter to you. What Jesus says should matter. In Matthew 24, Jesus has told his disciples he's going to the cross, and they have a very legitimate question because they know their Old Testaments, and they know that the Messiah was going to rule and reign on the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. And so they ask him very plainly, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We want to know when you're going to come again, since you told us you're going to the cross, and when all of the kingdom that we've been preaching for the last three years is going to have its culmination here on the earth with you ruling and reigning. Tell us when this is coming. That's a fair question. You would ask that question too. If you devoted three years of your life to following Jesus and he told you, I'm getting ready to be crucified, you'd be like, well, what does that mean? When are you coming back? What is the sign of your return? All right, next slide. You can turn to Matthew 24. You should, okay? But I'm going to bullet point so that my son doesn't show me a 59-minute timestamp on his watch when I get down for the bullet. I'm going to bullet point what Jesus says here in verses 4 through 13. He says, first of all, listen, many false Christs will arise. Many people will, will arise in the world saying that they are saviors, they are religious leaders, that they, that, you know, that they represent God. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. He says that there's going to be lots of wars and rumors of wars. Lots of war. You know, rumor of war is often scarier than a war itself. I mean, what's going to happen next? What, there's going to be lots of wars in the years to come and lots of rumors of war. There's going to be famine. People are going to die of starvation. And what happens when people are dying of starvation? People sort of think, is this the end of the world? There's going to be sickness, pestilence. What happens when there are plagues? When there are millions of people dying? There's panic. Is this the end of the world? There are going to be natural disasters. There's specifically earthquakes. You know, is this the end of the world? And there's going to be persecution. And when people are being persecuted, they ask, is this the end? 
There's going to be false teachers that come up and manipulate God's word to their own advantage. And God's people are going to look at what those false teachers are doing, and it's going to cause them great grief and anxiety, and they're going to ask the question, is the Lord Jesus about to return to put an end to all this? And that's not the end either. And there's going to be lawlessness. All of the morality, all of the order that we expect in society is going to evaporate. People are going to riot in streets and do heinous things to each other. And when stuff like that happens, you know if people ask, man, is this the end of the world? You've heard people say the world is going to hell in a handbag, right? That's what people are going to win. This is all just, it's all blowing up, you know? And Jesus says this is not the end. All these things he's telling them will happen, but they are not the signs of his coming. It's like he says the beginning of childbirth. And those of you who have gone through those long moments of childbirth know that there are points of pain and anxiety very early on, especially with those first children, where you're like, is it almost time? And they're like, no, we have a long way to go. That's what he's saying. All right, what's the next slide? Then Jesus says this. Now, I'm, I'm giving you two verses here to make it simplistic, but I, you know, read, the, read the entire passage. My intention is not to deceive you or to disguise the fact that I'm giving you two verses. I'm giving these two verses because of how they relate to Daniel here. Now, listen, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, you remember those two words? That was from Daniel 9. When the Antichrist breaks his covenant in the middle of a seven-year period of time. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's what Jesus says, standing in the holy place, and it says, whoever reads, let him understand, which I think is the Lord's way of saying, you can't just flick away all this prophecy stuff and say, well, I don't need to know any of that. No, Jesus is speaking about it for a reason. We're trying to understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And the next several verses give a more clear you know, warning you know, about how urgent it is that they run, that they flee, because, verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor shall ever be. It will be those last three and a half years as bad as it can possibly get when the Antichrist pursues God's people. Go to the next slide. Here is what Jesus says about what will happen at the end of this great tribulation. Verse 29. Immediately, this is what we saw in Daniel 7. This fourth beast does not have some long end of life span. It will climax with what we call the Antichrist, this world leader who will arise. And it will be immediately dealt with by God at the end of this period of time. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The world will be visited by its creator. The natural laws that govern our universe will be shown submissive to the appearance of Jesus Christ. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this is what we read in Daniel 7, that there will be this fourth kingdom, there will be the world leader, there will be a time where he prevails against the saints, and immediately the Son of Man will appear. Let's go to the next slide. Now, 
we still have this three and a half year bit because perhaps this is not compelling. So this is probably too small for you. I'll tell you, this will be up on our church's website if you want to print it out. Or you can just write it, some of these references down. I'm going to give them to you. We've already read Daniel 7.25, which speaks of this period of time as a time and times and half a time. And I told you, I thought that meant one plus two plus half a time, three for three and a half. The same language is repeated in Revelation 12, 14, when it talks about how God will miraculously provide for his people during this great tribulation period. And it says, for a time and times and half a time. So we're talking about the same period of time. Um, then we get it described to us in the book of Revelation in months. In Revelation 11:2. 2, it's describing the period of time after the Antichrist breaks his covenant. And it says they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, there are 12 months in a year. Three of those is 36. Plus six is three and a half. So this is three and a half years described as 42 months. Lest we not take that seriously, the exact same language is used in Revelation 13 verse 5. When it speaks of the Antichrist, that he has given authority to continue for 42 months. So we have months describing three and a half years of this great tribulation period twice in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, 6, we get it described in days. They should feed her, talking about God providing for God's people, pictured here as a woman. They should feed her there 1260 days. Now, I've done the math there. If you assume a 30-day lunar month calendar, which, wait till Daniel 9, but 30 days in a month, and you divide it all out, 1260 equals three and a half years. This is how Jews reckoned this. In Revelation 11.3, the same thing. They will prophesy, speaking of the two witnesses, prophesying in Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation. They will prophesy 1260 days. Now, we can debate when they will prophesy. Is it the beginning or is it the end? But it's a three and a half year period of time again. Now, this is why I believe this is talking about a three and a half year period of time. I'm going to say something very important to you now. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I know I could be wrong. I'm not writing any books saying I'm right. And if you disagree with me, you're going to hell. Okay, I could be wrong, but if I'm wrong, and this is why I believe this, it's because I'm reading what the Bible says repeatedly over and over again, and I'm trying to believe the plain things that it seems to be saying, the plain things. If I'm wrong, it's not because I'm reading the text here and coming up with some fantastical interpretation with Bible codes and numbers and each letter means this and et cetera, et cetera. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong because I simply read what's written there plain as day and I'm trying to understand it plain as day. And I assume, and maybe this is naivety on my part, maybe I'm wrong. I say that sincerely. But I assume that if God is giving me a time period in years in Daniel 9, which I think is plain to see when you get to Daniel 9, in months in Revelation, and in days in Revelation, and in prophetic language in Daniel and in Revelation, and if Jesus is pointing to that in Matthew 24, I think I'm just supposed to believe what it seems to plainly be saying there. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think that I am, and I'm not going to build my understanding on this based on some obscure 
you know, speculative, speculative thing. And, you know, I think a lot of people, and this is where I'll get myself in trouble, but I'll just do it anyway. Hopefully you'll forgive me. But I think a lot of people get themselves in real trouble when they try to speculate beyond what the Bible just seems to plainly say. Does the Bible say things that it doesn't give clear you know, explanations of prophetically? Yes, it does. Does that mean it's incumbent upon us to go figure out every secret thing as if that were even humanly possible? It's not. I don't live in the future. I live right now. I, I, I mean, if, if you want to stop me and tell me, well, now, here's what I think this means, and here's what I think is going to happen, and I, I bought this great book, and it told me this, and, you know, okay, I will listen politely to you, and then I will probably say something infuriating to you, like, that's all very interesting. And you'd be like, yeah, but is it right? Is it wrong? I'd say, I don't know. Why don't I know? Because it's not my job to go sell books about what's going to happen at the end of days. <laughs> I, I'm not in that profession, okay? And I wonder about those sometimes who are in that profession, but that's not me. So it's all very interesting. Does it align with what the Bible says? I, this is where I'm focused on here. What does the Bible say? This is God's revelation to us. This is what I would like to try to understand. So if I'm wrong, and I could very well be, about this three and a half year great tribulation, it's because I'm trying to take the Bible plainly. All right, next, next slide here. Final verses. Then the, this is Daniel 7, final verses. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. And my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. It's okay to be troubled by these things. I think. I think. It's not okay to be willfully ignorant of them. We should, we should seek better than that. But it's, it's okay to be troubled by these things. I'm troubled too. I want to see God's kingdom come. I want to have a place in that kingdom. But when I think about God's people suffering here on this earth, that's troubling to me. When I think about the world under the sway of false teachers and false leaders and manipulative people and people after political power, that is troubling to me. And when I think of the judgment of God upon people who have rejected him, that is troubling to me too. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is troubling to me. Not because I don't believe God will do it or that he's just in judging. Because I don't want to see anybody go to hell. So I work to try to see people saved. Um, I work to try to see people saved. And if we have Vacation Bible School this week, and we have a bunch of kids who come and they have fun here. And they see, hey, these people seem to love me and care about me. That's great. But if nobody shares the gospel with a child at VBS, that's not a great week. If nobody has the courage to move the step beyond, hey, Jesus loves you. 
into, and this is how he loved you. You know, you're not a perfect person, little kid, and I'm not a perfect person. Jesus gave his life so that you can be forgiven for your imperfections. And if you trust him, he'll give you eternal life forever. Now, that's not a complicated message to understand as a child. As a matter of fact, we have children all over the sanctuary who understand it just fine. But it takes courage to speak that way. Some parent might get mad. Somebody in the community might say something like, Oh, that church talks about hell with people. Praise the Lord. Um, I care about this judgment that is coming upon the world. And I believe you care too. Caring alone is not enough. We have to care and have the courage to speak to people. We have to have the courage. To speak. That's why I read from Romans 10 this morning. That's why I appreciate, Ryan, the opportunity to share with your campers on Friday. That's why we share with the kids at these summer kids events that we're doing. That's why we're having youth week to have time to share with teenagers who are going to be more thoughtful and going to have more questions. I care. You should care too. And you should speak. You should speak. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I am anxious to see your kingdom. Uh, I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know what it'll be like. I have no clue what my part in your kingdom will be. But I long for a kingdom that is not governed by darkness. I long for a kingdom where evil has no place. I long for a kingdom where sin does not corrupt and death does not destroy and the threat of death does not reign in the hearts of your people. If I knew nothing else about your son and your kingdom, that alone would be enough to be compelling to me. And I pray, Father, for people in this world who are dying, most of whom don't even realize that they're dying and are unprepared to stand before the ancient of days and have the books opened. And I pray, Father, you will put it on the hearts of your people, normal, everyday people, not deep theologians, not great scholars, not folks of tremendous intellect or great eloquence, but that you will put it in the hearts of simple people to share simply and yet clearly a profound story. And I thank you for that story. I thank you for your son who died for us, who rose for us, and who makes intercession for us. I thank you and look forward to the promise of his return. I ask, Father, that we will live faithfully in light of that return. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.